belief system is dangerous when it comes to certain areas. And then you travel the world and you realize that different cultures have different blind spots than the ones that we have. So today's text that we read um, is a blind spot that I think for the American church in ways that uh, I know that there's propensity to sin all over the world, but this, I think, might be one of the blind spots of the church today. Uh, that we have to submit ourselves to God's Word and say, Jesus, what does submitting to your Lordship look like with this topic and this area? And so we come to God's Word. That's why I love preaching through books of the Bible, because it's here, and we've got to deal with what this is saying. And there's some heavy, heavy uh, language that Paul uses to this young pastor of this young church in the city of Ephesus that we've been walking through. He's telling them what it means to be the household of God, the family of faith. He says, all right, listen, this is going to be an issue in the church, division in this church, but all churches, and we got to know what do we do with this, and how can we maybe be identified by God's grace some of these blind spots in our culture. So let's pick up in verse 3 and see what he says here. I just want to read a couple of verses to kind of uh, jump into this conversation. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, the word there literally means healthy words, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has, and notice this word, an unhealthy craving. Well, what's he unhealthily craving? Controversy, quarrels about words, and that controversy, those quarreling of, about words will produce this kind of life, this kind of church. Envy, beginning to compare ourselves to one another, want um, what others have, dissension, division now, slander, sort of building up your brothers and sisters, you tear them down, and it, evil suspicions or rumors. Anybody been in a part of a church that has rumors? Anybody? <laughs> no? Okay, I have. Um, verse 5, and constant friction. Man. I don't want, uh, that's real life right there, right? Constant friction, just sandpaper people, you know, in the church. Constant friction among people who are, are, listen to this, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining, here's the result of that. It's kind of, kind of setting up to the theme of what I think is faithful to this portion of Scripture. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Man, all right, let's just walk through that real quick and chew on it a little bit before we move on to any of the, the rest of the verses. What's he saying here? First, we've got to see the root of false belief. The root of false belief. So he says, if anyone, verse 3, teaches a different doctrine. So we know that Paul is interacting with false teachers. He's saying, Timothy, you as a young pastor have to understand doctrine and make sure that no one is veering away from truth of Jesus and what has been handed down, the, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And he's going to say it again, that these false teachers that are creeping up within the church are going to lead you astray. And here's going to be the results. And so when you, the church begins to stray from the gospel and believe wrong things, here's what's happening. Here's what's roots, that the roots of false belief that's creeping down in the church. Here's what's going to produce these type of people. He says puffed up. It's the idea of overinflated. It's like if you have a swollen joint or something, like it swells past its, its normal size. It's not healthy having the appearance of fullness, but we know if something's puffed up, like you blow up a, a, a balloon, it has the appearance of fullness, but there's nothing inside of it. It's just air. So that's what, what it's like to not believe the gospel, to veer from belief as you're puffed up. You become prideful. He says the word conceited, full of yourself, all about you and what it means to benefit you. That's what happens when we veer away from the gospel. And it says then the arrogance of it. 
is that they actually understand nothing. These people that are so arrogant and haughty in their thinking, that are teaching these things as truth, actually, they don't understand anything. It harkens back to Romans 1 where when we've sinned against God, rebelled against him, and we went and worshiped and served creation rather than the creator, it says that they, um, claiming, professing to be wise, they became fools. It's the nature of sin that we think that we know what's best, but in all actuality, you are a fool because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And to reject that God is utter foolishness. But there's not just an arrogance about false belief and false teachers. There's an ignorance about it that we just think that we know things that we don't know. They're blind spots. It's dangerous. It's so dangerous. And then he says there's an unhealthy craving that we've got to understand that this false belief is not just, I mean, yeah, these people have been led astray and it's bad and they're accountable. But we've got to understand all of our rebellion is creeping up from our heart. James says that why is there division among you to the people? Is it not that your desires are at war within you, he says. So if there's ever war right here with the church and because of false belief, it ultimately begins from a war within. The war without is stemming from a war within. That we have desires that are creeping up in our hearts that are hostile toward God, that does not want to submit to God and the beauty of God, that we don't want to go his way. And so there's these cravings that the Bible says are unhealthy. They're not whole. They're damaging. They're destruction. It's like a disease of the soul. That's what our sin is. And out of those cravings produces pride and arrogance. And that pride and arrogance is just puffed up that we are overinflated. We have the appearance of fullness, but there really is no power thereof, Timothy, Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy. So that's the root of false belief. But then he says the, fr- the fruit of that. So when a church begins to do that, Here's what begins to sprout on the tree that you can see. That's what's happening underneath the surface, but here's what happens above the surface. is number one, division in the church. There's now controversy, and there's quarrels, and there's envy, and dissension, and slander, and evil suspicion. They've now divided. But again, you can't just go and say, let's attack the fruit and fix it, because the fruit is just coming up from the root of this false belief and this decay of the soul, from these unhealthy cravings, and these false teachings, and these unhealthy words. But the result is the church is going to be divided. So again, we're reading this passage saying, how are we going to be the family of faith? This faith family that says we're going to follow King Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, everything increasingly submitted to Jesus, and we do that together. We have to know that if we begin to stray from the gospel, this will be the result of the church, division. But then, not just at a corporate level, but also at an individual level, he says it's the decay of the soul. He says that he's depraved in mind, that you're no longer thinking accurately because you've begun to buy this false lie that we're no longer having our mind transformed by the renewal of the word of God, but we're just left to our own imagination. That's a dangerous place to be. And the result, because of that, they were deprived of truth. So these truths are sound words. So listen, a heart that has rejected truth is a heart that is malnourished and dying. Jesus says that I am the bread of life. I am the fountain of living waters. This word is the bread of life. It's about the the sincere milk of the word. That when you veer away from God's word, the result is a decay of who you are because of your sin. And the destruction of that is so horizontal. Our sin affects more than just us. It affects the people of God. Always. Always. So he says, hey, you don't want to do that, right? Like, I mean, who, who wants to have a decayed soul? Anybody? I mean, I don't think that sounds too pleasant. So what's the answer? What's the remedy? 
Well, he says um, here the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts off, don't let anybody teach you a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. When you go away from that, that word sound, it's the Greek word that we get our word for hygiene. So this, the idea of sound is this idea of wholeness, of wellness, of vitality of life. So he's contrasting this. You have these unhealthy cravings and these false doctrines that are decaying you from the inside out. So we need the remedy of that. It's the sake of being trite, the, the medicine of God's word. It's the remedy. It's the healing of this sin problem that we have and of this division problem in the church. Is we need the sound words of Jesus. And this is the teaching that accords with godliness. So the idea of godliness is what true wholeness actually looks like. The idea of godliness is, I mean, yeah, doing the right things and not doing the bad things. I mean, that's definitely godliness. It does have a sense of morality. But the word godliness has a deeper kind of richer connotation. It has the idea of a God consciousness in everyday life. It's being saturated by God. It's the, and we've talked about it before, but it's this idea of being, of when Paul says to pray without ceasing, it's that every moment is just under submission to Jesus and our, our God, in awe of our God, wanting God, saying, God, what does your will look like in this situation? It is a God permeating our soul. So if you want godliness, if you really want to be that kind of person, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to be not just trying to externally obey God, but to be captured by his beauty and enthralled by his goodness changed from the inside out and then living a life of faithful obedience to him that's godliness in every area of my life i'm striving to live for his glory and to be like him be like him so i need teaching that is consistent with that (laughs) i want to be that i want to be well i want to be whole i don't want to be decaying and sin sick i want to be well so i need the sound words of jesus so that i could be flourishing in this wholeness of god centeredness in my life but here here's the point we don't believe this you say well no i believe you theologically but i'm saying in our sinful hearts the sinful heart rejects that that we do not in our rebellion believe that God's word and what he says in his word are those sound words that leads to flourishing. That's part of our rebellion. As we've, Romans 1 would say, we have suppressed the truth, held down the truth. And we are running after all these things, thinking that they're going to be what produces wellness and wholeness in our lives. And in all actuality, it leads to the decay of our soul and the division in the church and um, Rebellion against God and ultimately proving that if there's no repentance that we never belong to him in the first place. It's a a cheap substitute. Because that's what he says in verse 5. The result of this, 5b says, imagining, so that kind of person that has went down that trajectory, is imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So here's what he's saying. I want godliness, I want to have God walk with God, do what God says, even maybe even use the word. But listen, not just for the express purpose of having him. I will be godly, try to have a manner of life and be religious for, what does it say? As a means of gain, to get something from him. And guys, this is the, the absolute treason that is our rebellion against him, is that we now are all worshiping God's gifts 
instead of him, the giver of the gifts. That all the things in life are not necessarily bad. Some of our stuff that we are prone to worship, they're good gifts. But when good gifts become God things to us, they become idolatry, looking to things instead of God. And get this, that's true for us, for those of us that um, are rebelling against God. So maybe you're here right now and you would say, I'm not a Christian, I'm here exploring. That there's a way of rebelling that we are just completely casting off restraint from God. We want nothing to do with God. He said, I don't want him. I think gain in my life, it happens out here. It's the lie of sin, that life is found around God rather than in him. And you've just rejected him, and you're looking for fulfillment and gain in life anywhere and everywhere but him. And that's the case. I hope you see um, why that is just folly this morning, that you'll turn to Jesus and repent of your sins, put faith in who he is and what he's done. But for most of us in the room, it's a little bit more subtle than that. We're all rebellious, and even though those of us who are Christians, the way that our rebellion sometimes looks is maybe not just outright rejection of God's word and living a life of debauchery the way we see it, but our sin is just as deep, but it is religious. That we're doing God things, <laughs> doing all the right things on paper to where you could make a spreadsheet of you know, your life and your behavior, but it's not really about godliness in that I want him. Him alone. Like, I'm doing all these things just so that I can enjoy my God. Not to earn his love, but because you have his love, just say, I'm in love with my God. But instead, religion and religious activity can become a means. And this is subtle. I don't know if anybody we would ask ourselves that we would admit to this outright. But it's subtle. Just Satan deceives us to think that we can be busy in the church, busy doing good, moral, Christian, East Tennessee type lifestyle. And we're doing it more to put God at our debt than we are to express love for him and to follow him. So if I live this way, if I act this way, if I come here and do these things, then God has to bless me, right? He has to do this stuff for me. So, and that's where a lot of frustration happens in the church is when you have that mindset of I'm obeying so that I get this from God. I'm almost like I'm bartering with him. Then what happens when he doesn't do what you thought he would do? And you're like, God, I've done all this for you. You better keep up your end of the bargain. Anybody ever thought something like that? Be honest. I mean, I've prayed that in my, in my mind sometimes. Like, God, listen, I don't deserve this. Anybody thought that? Be honest and confess that this morning. It's this idea that, God, I'm doing all this for you so that you'll do this for me. When you're not doing this for me, then we've got problems. And I believe, and that's where pride begins, and that's where despair happens. But pride begins to happen when things are going your way, and you think that it's going your way because God likes you more than he likes that guy, and he's paying you back. He's earn, you're earning it. And you, then you kind of walk with a swagger. Instead of seeing that song we just said, grace and peace, how can this be that your grace would come to me? We don't sing that song with tears in our eyes because... We kind of, it makes sense why God would show grace to us because we're pretty good people. You know, we've done all this stuff. God should be happy he has us on his team. <laughs> God help us. It's, it's the lie of religion. So, yeah, outright rebellion is sin. But man, religious activity, godliness as a means to gain is just as simple as if we were all just to give up on following Jesus and just go live a life of debauchery tomorrow. Um, it's just as simple. It's coming from a place of a heart that doesn't want the Father and using the Father as a means to whatever they want. So <laughs> that's what has happened um, in us. Now we've got to kind of correct it and say what's some of the things that are going to happen in us that expresses itself. So here's a statement I want to say to move on. Jesus did not come to be useful. 
He came to be precious. So we don't follow Jesus to get things from Jesus. We don't begin to follow Jesus to add on Jesus to my life and hope that he keeps blessing my plans. Matter of fact, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to come and die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I came that I would be the treasure of your soul, not a means to get what you really want. Jesus is everything, not the things he can provide for me. So let me just ask you, do you love Jesus for who he is? We praise him for his gifts, but what if they are all taken away? Is he enough for you? Really? Jesus, you are my delight. Any any alternative is absolutely dangerous. And so here's one of the ways that this rebellion can express itself that I think is faithful here from 1 Timothy 6. Is that we can now begin to buy the lie that stuff, just physical things, stuff will satisfy the longing of our souls. That's one of the expressions of our sin. It's not the only expression of our sin, not the only expression of the way we rebel against God, but it is certainly one of the ways that we rebel against God. And it is true of the church in the West that this might be one of those blind spots like we talked about when we started off, that we've got, we're extraly, extraly, wow, extra, <laughs> I'm trying to sound smart, extra um, blind to. So he says in verse 9 of chapter 6, those who, what's the word? Those who desire to be rich. It's not just those who maybe are rich. It's not bad to be rich. We'll talk about that. But those who desire it. That's that unhealthy craving that we're talking about earlier. And then later on he says, it is through this craving that you're going into destruction. Craving for more resources, more stuff, more comfort. He says, you've got to watch that desire because it's coming out of a place of rebellion. And then verse 10, kind of a very popular verse, idea, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So again, we say all the time, I just want to make a caveat before we move on. Money is not inherently evil. You know that, right? It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money. It's that desire. It's creeping up in us. So money can be a window into the goodness of God. We praise God for resources, especially in the West. We don't have to feel guilty for the access to things that we have. It is a common grace that he's bestowed upon us. Um, and we can praise him for the things that he gives us in, our, in his life. To see the stuff and roll our praise over the stuff into the giver of the stuff. Are we tracking together? Like it's a good gift from his hand. And then money can also be one of the main ways that we engage in the mission of God. That what if the reason that God's blessed us in the West is not just for ourselves and for our standard of living to increase, but rather to say there's people all around the world who live on less than $2 a day, who are dying and without Jesus, that have never heard the name of Jesus. And what if all the, the prosperity of our country is for the sake of their worship over there? It is a means for mission. So praise God for money. Go make lots and lots of it. <laughs> but you can't let it have your soul. It's not a bad thing, but it makes a really, really terrible God. Makes a really terrible God. That's why he says it's the root of all kinds of evils. So think about this. He's saying to us, if you don't watch your desire for things, <laughs> that it's going to exhibit itself in so much rebellion in your life. And you're going to m- miss out on it because you're blind to materialism. Because we've kind of told ourselves it's okay to have things. And, we, and that's right. We're not taking that away. Like it's okay to have things. But man, we are so subtle and blind that we're not really asking these hard questions of when's the last time that you looked at everything you own and said, God, is this keeping me from you? 
Is my pursuit of things or my fear of not having things or the things that I do have, is, is that in any way producing any other evils in my life? Here's just some of the ways this might look in our lives. Okay, here's some of the ways that this are some of these evils that could be produced from a love of money. Here's one. Um, money can keep us from desperate dependence on God. Money can keep us from desperate dependence on God. Mark 10, the words of Jesus, he looked around, verse 23, and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The context here is the rich young ruler that wanted to follow Jesus. And then when Jesus said to give everything away and give it to the poor and follow me, he went away exceedingly sorrowful because he had great possessions. And Jesus said, listen, that guy loves his stuff more than he loves me. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom. And the disciples were amazed at his words because, again, don't we want the wealthy people? Like, that's a good thing. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know why? Because the kingdom of God is self-denial. doesn't make sense. It's saying we're following allegiance to our king. If he doesn't come through, we're sunk. And money gives us um, it's, that's always true. That is true of our lives. Even in America, you said we may not feel like we're rich, but we are rich compared to the world. And we can kind of have comfortable because we look at our bank account and there's something there. It may not be a lot there, but there's something there. We have our stuff and we don't, we're not desperately dependent on the Spirit of God to do the mission of God because we think that we have, we have a safety net to fall back on. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but you can begin to put your hope there. That's dangerous. Very difficult for a rich person. Not impossible, because with God, all things are possible, but a rich person has to be deconstructed from his self-sufficiency to throw himself on the mercies of Christ and see what is actually true. But money has a way of clouding that vision. Here's another way, another root of evil. Money can change the way that you think about you. We can love money because for what it can buy us. So we have these comfort idols, and we just want stuff. We just want to live comfortably. And money is a means to our comfort. But what we're really worshiping is our comfort. Worship ourselves. We, can, we love money because of how it makes us look. That maybe it'll set us apart from someone else. It makes me appear to be better or more cool or whatever than I actually am. And it, what you're really worshiping is an approval idol. Is you want your fear of man and you're wanting people to, to look at you and to think something of you. So we use money as a means to feed that idol of our hearts. We love money because it gives us ability to manipulate. So we have more money than you, then I have a little bit of a leg up on you. I can have power and control over you. That's the idols of there. We want to be in, in control. So to not have money, to not be in control. I don't want to not be in control because my control is my idol. I'm looking to control to be what only God can be for me. It, we love money because of what it allows us to avoid. It gives us a sense of security. And I don't have to worry about not having to provide for my family because I've got all this stuff and there's just a safety there. Rather than saying God is my source of safety and I rest in him to provide for my family. No, we think that it's what we have that does that. It's sinful. We love money because of how it makes us feel. We feel valued, important, significant. It's the lie of this. If I only had blank, then I would be fulfilled, happy, flourishing. It's the lie of the, if I only had this. What's your this? That is what you're worshiping. It's one of those loves of money that's going to pull you away 
from God. And some of us would say, if I have a lot of stuff, a lot of money, it means I'm more loved by God. This is that prosperity gospel that's all over the world that says, you follow God, and if you trust God, he's going to bless you with financial resources. And that's a lie straight from our enemy. That God's going to bless us. He does bless us in the heavenlies, in the heavenlies with a spiritual blessing, not necessarily financial resources. But we look to those things to say, if I have that, that's a sign of favor. God must really like me. And it's, again, it's all self-centered. And then another reason why, another root of evil that can happen from money is money can be the fuel to the fires of our sinfulness. Proverbs 30 says, God, don't guard me from poverty and plenty because if I have plenty, I might forget that I need you. And if I'm poor, I might steal from someone and, and defame your name. So just give me enough. Don't let resources be my hope and don't let it be so gone that I have nothing. And so really, maybe you have greed and you have all these idols, but if you don't have money, then you don't really have freedom to act on them. But when you start having the freedom to have resources, then it shows you where your heart really is. So the psalmist is, or the Proverbs guys right and says, man, don't let me fall into this trap. I don't want stuff to have my heart. So here's the statement that'll transition to the last part of this text. When self is at the center. So when you stop seeing God and all of his glory and I exist for him, and him alone, he's my satisfaction, you put yourself there. of What I want, what I get, my comfort, my approval, my security, my safety, my power, my control, my value. We, look, we can look to money as our pseudo-savior to be for us what only God can be. That's a summary statement of all that I've just said, is that we have a temptation to look to stuff to be for us what only God can be because when you stop worshiping God, you'll look to anything else to fill it. And money is one of the main things in our culture that we do this. Um, so he says in verse 6, but <laughs> that false teaching that leads you away from God and his glory begin to say, I'm going to follow God to get his things. Godliness is a means to gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So we believe that gain is found in obtaining more things. But God says there's great gain to be had in him, him alone. So godliness, all of that, we talked about that godliness is, but with contentment. Here's what contentment means. Contentment actually was a stoic idea of a heightened morality. It was a, so take God out of the equation. It was an idea of if I'm content, that I'm free from the control of any external circumstances. I, I, I can experience something and it doesn't move me. I'm just, I'm solid, I'm steady, I'm internally controlled. I'm not dependent or reacting to anything around me. That was kind of a goal for the Stoic philosophers and the thought of that day. And Paul uses that idea and actually redeems it it says, no, 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 it's not this self-sufficiency that you have, that where you don't, you're not affected by anything. But contentment is found when you find everything that you need in God. That is true contentment. It's realizing that if I have God, I have enough. It's contentment. To say, yes, give me poverty or riches, it doesn't matter because I have him. And he said, Paul says, that's great gain. It's when you get to the place where you realize that everything you're looking for, all this stuff, it's not going to fulfill and contentment. Godliness, I'm, I'm following God, not to get things from God. I'm following God because I have God and I want more of him. When you are just satisfied in the person of God, then you are content, free from external. Um, you don't need anything else now because you have him. What more can you add to God? The answer is nothing. But in our sin, we think that we need him plus something else. So he says, 
um, the, in um, Hebrews chapter 13, here's what he says. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, this is our God to you, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hey, don't love money. Have contentment because, listen, God ain't going anywhere. Your money will fade and it, will, it can be here tomorrow and gone the next day, but God is constant. And everything that you're looking, the end result we're going to see in a second is dangerous, but God is actually going to fulfill and be your maid for him. So he says, in, back to 1 Timothy 6, he says in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world. Here's the basis of commitment. We brought, or contentment rather. We brought nothing into the world and we can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. It's just so foolish to put our identity in things here that, I mean, you were who you were without that stuff. And you've heard the old country preachers say, maybe, you ain't never seen a U-Haul fall in a casket. You ever heard that one? Think about that. That's good. Write that down. That's good. What's the point? Is when you die, it ain't going with you. So how foolish is it to live your life to just get more stuff when you have everything you need in God? And one day you're going to be out of this, all of this right now this, that you're so focused on will be no more. What are you going to have then? It sure is not going to be your stuff. So Jesus agrees with us in Matthew 19 here where he says, Do not lay up treasures, yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because it's going to decay. Somebody can come in and steal it from you. But instead, lay up your treasures in heaven where nobody can touch it. We sang that song, this my inheritance that never fades away. Like that is what we have. And then he gives you kind of a clue into your heart. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We lay up our treasures in heaven, not on this earth, because we want our heart to be there, right? Not here. So if you want to know what you're worshiping and what you love, look back in the last month at how you spent your finances. Look at the things where your money's going because that is a good indicator of what you're worshiping. Luke 12, Jesus says again, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He goes, guys, listen, you're living for this stuff. Your life is more than what you have. It's who you are. And who, if you're worshiping him, and if money is a means by which for you to worship God and live for his glory and his mission, it is a gift and steward it and praise him for it. But you've got to be on guard against wanting more, <laughs> believing that if I get more, then I'm going to have a more fulfilled life. And he says, it is just a lie. And it's a lie that I'm afraid so many of us are walking into. And it's keeping us from risking all for the mission of God because we love our comfort so much. We love our stuff so much. And the thought of God moving us to a place where we wouldn't have those things is just ridiculous. Why would we ever do that? Because it's not safe there. Or I'm not going to have my house if I go there. And I have to leave all of these things. And it's keeping us from truly listening to the Spirit of God and following Him to whatever He's calling our church to do. And we know what He's calling our church to do. And it's to see His glory known throughout the world. And so materialism is going to keep us and rob us from that joy and that obedience. So he says in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 6, he says, But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. This is brought back to Jesus. He goes, listen, 
Do you not see the birds out there? God provides for them. Do you not see the flowers out in the field? He provides for them. How much more value do you have to God than those created things? Do you not know that God knows you need stuff? He's going to provide for you. So he says, seek first the kingdom, right? And then all these things will be added to you. It's this idea of if I have enough, just the basic necessities of simple life, then I'm going to be content there because I have God and he will provide what I need if I'm risking all for his glory and living on mission. He's going to provide what I need. Maybe not what I want, but what I need. Man, I'm going to have to skip uh, around here uh, so we can actually uh, get out of here and go to lunch. But I want us to jump to verse 9. The warning of materialism. We'll end with this. I want to read it to us. uh, Verse 9 and uh, verse 10. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Let me just walk through this real quick and we'll be done, okay? So hang with me. Materialism is a subtle tactic of the enemy. He says, fall into temptation. So that's, you can't see that coming, right? It's the idea of you're just walking along and you fall into a trap. And that's what he says. That's what this looking to things to fulfill you is like. You're going to fall into that temptation. And that is what Satan is doing right now. He is tempting us with good things. And we, we don't know that we're falling into a trap. Because that's what he says, into a snare. So materialism is bondage. It's like we're reaching our hands out for this thing that we think is going to fulfill us. And it's like we just get shackled. As we reach out for it, we're vulnerable at that place. He goes, don't get caught into this this snare, this insatiable desire for more and more and more. It's a compulsive way of living that you're going to abandon family or whatever just to make ends meet. And those ends aren't really about survival. It's about your standard of living that you've created out of your desire, your covetousness. And this desire, this idolatry of money and comfort and and safety is going to take you to your death. So he says, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I mean, so much of our lives is spent on how can I get to this level to get this thing? And once I get that, I got to get to this place. And and we're on this rat race. And what if Satan is using that just to lull us to sleep of what he's doing in the world? It is a senseless, these are senseless desires. And he says that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This idea of taking somebody in chains and throwing them down the bottom of the sea and holding them at the bottom until they drown. Like, that's the, that's the idea in the language if you study it. It's like, I'm being plunged into ruin and destruction to the depths of the sea. That is what it's like to give yourself to these things. It's what Paul is warning us of. And so in verse 10, we've got to guard ourselves against this because it is through this craving for more stuff instead of God that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. We see this in Scripture. We talk about the rich young ruler. That was his story. Judas Listen, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Ananias and Sapphira, an act. What happened to them? Because of their greed and their, and their hypocrisy, they were slain by the Holy Spirit. Not in the charismatic way, but like dead in the Holy Spirit. Like nothing. So it's important to say money will cost you. It could cost you your life, but it can also cost you your soul. That's what Jesus says in Mark 8. And we're done with this. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? There's more important things in life than these pursuits. So are you pursuing him? To where then you can be free from the love of money. To where when God blesses you with resources, you can praise his name and use them for his glory. And if he takes them away, you're not destroyed. How is your heart on this? We've got to submit 
uh, to it. But I'd like to invite you to bow with me uh, and close your eyes. We're going to finish up a little bit. We're not done. Uh, we've got to sing a song of praise to our God in response to this. But I want us to um, kind of lean in uh, to what God's saying to us and what's going to be the answer to this. <laughs> like, if we do have this materialism that's creeping into our lives, if our hearts are prone to love God's gifts more than Him, like, what's going to be the answer? And I just want to just speak this over us um, while we aren't looking around and just hear the words of God over you as you respond uh, to it. How do we cultivate this heart of contentment that this God is enough in my life? Well, first, you've got to realize that everything you need in Christ you already have. Paul says that I've learned the secret to be content. I can be torn down and I can be lifted up, but I don't change. You know why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret of contentment. So you want to be content in him. Do you realize that Jesus has equipped you with everything that you need? And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus, um, you don't know him as Lord and Savior, like all this stuff, like don't just apply principles, like see that your heart has been drawn away from him in your rebellion and that he's come to you and said, I've lived the life you couldn't live. Jesus did. God in the flesh. I've died the death that you deserve to die and I rose again and I've conquered the enemy and if you will turn from you as Lord and King over your life and you will say I don't want this sin and this idolatry anymore I want you God you are enough and you throw yourself on the mercy of God he promises to forgive you of your sins you don't have to pay him back he loves you based upon what you could ever do for yourself and he says that I will adopt you into my family I will give you my spirit to change you to be this kind of person you have everything you need in Jesus. So do you have Jesus? If you don't, that is where you have to begin. We invite you into that today. Repent and believe the gospel today. If you have more questions about that, we would love to talk to you after the service is over. But for those of us who do, do you see Jesus as your all in all, your satisfaction? So let me just remind us of the gospel again. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That Jesus took our place. He became as nothing, did away with every material resource, was fully in tune with God the Father in our place, and bore our wrath that we deserve. Our God is a generous God, and it propels us to a lifestyle of generosity because we are compelled, not just from the mission of God, and not just what he's calling us into, but because of his goodness and the gospel of what he has done for us. And so I'd like to invite you to stand, and we're going to sing this song as a response. I'm going to, Psalm 63, please stand with me. I'm going to read this over us and set up this song. Um, it says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's, that's why, why you need God. If the stuff this world's not going to fulfill, that craving in you is for Him. So run to Him. And he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So we're going to sing this song. That God, your love is better than life. I'm content in you, not things of this world. So let's sing it with everything we've got. And we mean this uh, to our God.